Freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello again, culminators. This is an interesting one that we have today. Tony Schaffer, a man who absolutely has had a fascinating career and is continuing to have one. And I hope he'll update us on that. Uh, Tony has uh, a background in, in intelligence. He is famous for uh, getting involved in a very big censorship issue, which, as you know, is our putative theme here on Culmination Podcast. I have to imagine when I first heard about when the government censored Tony's book, I saw things a lot differently. I tr saw the government a lot differently. I didn't know Tony at all. I mean, so Tony and I really only know each other through Twitter, where we have been mutual followers for years. And all of a sudden, Tony didn't follow me anymore. I was absolutely flabbergasted. Tony, why'd you stop following me? Well, I was, it's a forced unfollowing by the fact that Twitter banned my account, uh, permanently uh, jettisoning, basically banning me, because it was strange, strange enough the day it happened. I was actually in the process of calling out Ray Epps, this uh, supremely mysterious character who seems to have uh, pushed for a breach of security at the Capitol, but somehow he's not in trouble. He's uh, just an innocent bystander, yet others are being charged. So it was really peculiar, Ron, that it was that day I started trolling him that all of a sudden uh, I became dangerous and my account became permanently banned. So uh, but you've been a dangerous person for a long time. So let's take apparently. a look. Let's back up and start out with when you were the kind of dangerous that it seemed that everybody was happy with, at least everybody on this side of the of the of the ocean. Your, your so, intelligence career and, and yeah, your subsequent. So I'll walk uh, through a little bit. Of that. So I uh, basically. Uh, joined the intelligence community in the 80s. I was actually uh, deploying in 85. As a matter of fact, I've been doing a lot of media on this. I actually deployed to Germany in 1985 as uh, a very young second lieutenant doing counterterrorism stuff. Uh, we were chasing terrorist groups. Uh, red, supporting red Brigades days? Red Brigades, uh, sports group Hoffman, RAF, all that. So yes, we were actually engaged in that, uh, doing stuff undercover, uh, Move, moving on into the later 80s, I joined, uh, became a human intelligence or a, a clandestine operations case officer, which went, went through CIA training in, in 1988, uh, actually graduated and become, became a, uh, an initially an Air Force case officer, uh, switched over to the Army, and then to defense intelligence, defense intelligence uh, from 95 to about 2000, 2000. Uh, God, what year did I, I get uh, get fired for whistleblowing? I think it was 2007. And uh, then from there on, I went into doing a variety of things uh, regarding uh, think tank work. Now, wait a uh, minute. You, you can't have been fired for whistleblowing. I distinctly yeah. read 
that the Defense Department did a thorough investigation and determined that the Defense Department did nothing wrong. Yeah. The Defense Department always does nothing wrong, according <laughs> to them. And so, ironically enough, one of my friends and allies in this has been Judicial Watch. And of course, <clears throat> recently, the special op regarding the issue, just for people to understand, it was something called Able Danger. It was the pre-9-11 uh, offensive, offensive targeting of, of al-Qaeda and its elements globally that was being done by Special Operations Command. Uh, the actual directive was signed by their then chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Hugh Shelton, in 1999. Uh, it was a very comprehensive effort that nobody wanted to talk about because it was very much off the books. And uh, when, we, when I was asked to, to whistleblow on it in 2004, uh, my life changed irrevocably, got called into testimony to testify in 2006. So what does that uh, mean, asked to whistleblow? I think everybody so, living through the last few years thinks that whistleblowing is something that an independent squeaky wheel does. Yeah, it's really interesting you should mention it that way, because essentially I was assigned to U.S. Navy, the Navy to an organization called Deep Blue. And this was, I think, as I recall, in January of 2000, uh, 2005. Yeah, it was 2005, where uh, basically um, the, uh, the Navy was wanting to replicate uh, the technology that had been developed by Special Operations Command in 99 and 2000, 2001, using data mining. Uh, the Navy wanted to recreate that. So basically, Army Intelligence, uh, Terry Ford, the deputy destined of the Army, uh, assigned me as a reserve officer to support the Navy, to support uh, Deep Blue, the, the, the internal Navy think tank. And uh, over that six months from, from January to June of 2005. Did the Navy actually believe that the Army possibly thought they could be as smart as the Navy? Well, they did. I don't know if that's true or not, but they asked me to help. <laughs> and I think that was the grand iron. And, what, and by the way, Ron, that's what got me in trouble because uh, in, in March, in May of, two, of, 90, of 2005, uh, the team got shut down by the Navy. The Navy basically said, because the Navy, they wanted to go over, the team wanted to go over and ask for money from Congress. Imagine that, you know, appropriated money to fund this able danger uh, Navy version. And um, boy, the Navy congressional liaison got really upset with these guys because, you know, hey, you can't just show up and ask for money. So the, the Navy guy in charge, a Navy captain called Scott Philpott said, Hey, you're not Navy, you're Army. You can go ask on our behalf, and they can't stop you. So next thing you know, I'm sent over. <laughs> I know it's crazy. What could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? So they sent me over to, to, the, to, to, to Congressman Kurt Weldon, the, the number two on, on armed services, and I asked for the money. I laid out what they wanted to do. And, and Ron, God, God bless you know members of Congress and the Navy. Uh, during this, this briefing where I'm asking for money to fund this, Kurt Weldon, he asked the, the really hard question of, well, I funded this already. What happened to the money? Oh, well, let me tell you what happened. And that's where I lay out what happened regarding able danger. I basically tell him the complete story. And next thing you know, he's calling up the 9-11 Commission, asking them, why didn't they investigate this? The 9-11 Commission tells his office, oh, we didn't want to investigate. That was, we didn't want to go down that path. And so next thing you know, I'm a whistleblower. I mean, that's that's how it happened. It's like I I wasn't disgruntled. I was just over doing my job. And next thing you know, I'm told I made a protected disclosure. 
you being a lawyer would understand that term, Ron. Uh, so uh, I had no idea. I mean, it was like, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of a controversy swirling all around me within months that I had no idea. And, and so I was simply trying to do what I thought was my duty. Uh, by the way, I was over there with full approval by the Army. When I told the Army about this, uh, the event, when, the, you know, when Congressman Weldon wanted more information, the guidance was uh, tell them what they want to know and tell them the truth. That was it. That's what the Army said. Tell them what they want to know and tell them the truth. Uh, okay. Seems pretty clear to me. So that's, that's how my uh, life went off the rails, uh, became a whistleblower, uh, made multiple disclosures and ended up having to testify. You know, by the way, a, 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 when you're in career cover and you have to go testify, a little secret round, there's no going back to career cover after that. You're, you're kind of blown. Just saying. Don't they, have those, don't they have those things they point at you? They make you forget everything? Or, or... That's right. Well, it's funny. I was watching last night uh three days of the condors like man that that brought back memories you know wow to say. oh boy you know i you know i never i never forgot that movie Ooh. i remember i mean we're, we're, i guess we're dating ourselves right but we are we are i i remember being it was just so fascinating to me that well <laughs> every one of the buildings gonna have to die i guess let's send in the mailman jeez <laughs> <laughs> you know? no one will know no one will figure this out CIA does this kind of thing all the time in the middle of what was Washington. Yeah. So, but anyway, Ron, so I, that's how I ended up being a whistleblower. And then obviously uh, we believe to, to the topic we're going to talk about a little bit today, the censorship, we believe the retaliation re, 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 uh, continued well into the, the, my publishing of, a, of uh, Operation Darkheart, which is that poster right over my shoulder there, which was really focused primarily on my undercover work in Afghanistan in 2002 and 2003. But with that said, um, it really did, we had a whole chapter on able danger where I made my, which apparently was my first protected disclosure, I didn't know that at the time, to Phil Zelikow, the 9-11 commission, who was there at Bagram in October of 2003. So the, the, my original protected disclosure I didn't know it was, again, protected because I didn't know I was a whistleblower when I talked about the existence of this operation and its focus. So I ended up, uh, Ron, without knowing it, uh, made two protected disclosures in you know very short order that got me in a lot of trouble that I had no idea were protected disclosures. But that's that's how we got here, I guess. So, yeah. But I, but I guess by virtue of being protected disclosures, they at least set up an envelope of immunity around you didn't seem to work didn't seem i didn't i wasn't very immune from anything from what i i've come to you know I'm, well i'm not i'm not ungrateful i mean look i, I run a think tank but you're not I'm, in Le you know, you're not I, in leavenworth either no i'm i didn't yeah no uh unindicted just saying that's you know good news there so uh and then i run a think tank i'm retired both as a reserve uh lieutenant colonel and uh, civil civil servant so you know i mean it i'm not i'm not bitter but uh, at the same time, uh, boy, they came after me really hard, and it's still not—it's still not done. I mean, I was about to mention Judicial Watch, one of my yes. allies in this. One of uh, America's allies. Yeah, they—they they did a Judicial FOIA. Watch is so—they do what journalists did when we were growing that when we were growing up, which journalists right. do not do anymore. No, they don't. Well, this is the point. So they did—they did a FOIA. Back oh, I just saw—I just saw this. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's like, uh, yeah, thanks for your patience from 14 years ago. So, so, the, so, so the cover up still continues. Just saying. I mean, it's not done yet. So, you know. And, and I mean, 
we have heard more about the so-called intelligence community in the last five years than we ever heard about it anyone in the entire 50 years of our lives. No question about that. It seems that it has always been the case, unsurprisingly. This, and from my reading, I have the impression it's true across the board. If, if, if the decision or, is made or the word gets out that one of our guys burned us, that it was disloyal to the IC, that's it. He's dead. He's dead to us. There's no, you know, and it seems like that's what you experienced. Well, yes and no. It's, it's interesting you should put it that way. I think um, what's interesting is that uh, if you follow me on Facebook, a, a lot of my spooky friends are there with me. So those who I worked with are there. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I tell stories about some of them on there. Uh, one of them, I don't think you'll mind me mentioning him, uh, Colonel Jerry York. Jerry is the grandson of Sergeant York. Uh, he was my really? boss during a lot of my base opera. Yeah. But I, you I, know, I, love I our listeners don't even know who Sergeant York is. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's too bad. No, I, Jerry, Jerry was the great grandson of Sergeant York. Uh, and um, I worked for him for a long time. Uh, and people like him have always stuck with me because they knew I was telling the truth. Uh, they've done their best to help make sure that uh, I got through okay. It was difficult. Army, for the most part, tried to protect me during this. They, at the end, the reserve went against me. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, at one point I called over to army, the death center of the army on something that was going on. And the, the Colonel said, uh, you know, he said, Tony, I don't know if you understand how much we're trying to protect you. You have no idea. It's like, really? He said, no, you, you, we're, you know, you're, you're doing what you were asked to do. And, uh, Alvin York, Sergeant York. Uh, we're, and so we're doing everything we can protect you. So the army guys, I, I think for the most part have always stuck with me. It's more about the bureaucracy, the, the people who burn you, Ron, are those who are basically committed to, boy, I'm going to use this word and get in trouble, the deep state. I've come to believe that there's this larger cabal of, of bureaucrats and politicians who will simply act and do whatever necessary to protect uh, the, the quote-unquote enterprise, this larger monolith that continues to move forward, that never uh, accepts accountability, that uh, seeks to do things and say things that uh, are not in the interest of the American people. So I think that's who really burns you. So to speak. When did this occur to you? Because we only started hearing about it, most of us regular people. And I've been a student, an amateur student of politics my whole life. And, I, and having studied it in college, I heard about the permanent bureaucracy and about agency, um, you know, the revolving door and agency yeah. capture. But this idea of the deep state, I think, is a, is a relatively newer um, coinage. When did it occur to you that there was this monolith? So maybe not so monolithic, really, but for these purposes, what you're referring to, when, when did you pick up on the existence of this? Was it when they. Yeah, during the 2004, 2005 period, because right after I got suspended over minor issues coming back from Afghanistan, it's like, there's something wrong here. It's like, these are stupid issues. Why am I, why are they coming after my clearance? And we couldn't figure it out. It's like the, the three issues they, they were trying to get me on, uh, by the way, the army, the allegations, the defense intelligence agency used to revoke my clearance, the army 
looked at and promote, promoted me to lieutenant colonel. I mean, you, you could not get something completely diametrically opposed more than that. That literally, the, the same month, they, they went after my clearance, the army promoted. I mean, it's, it's just that bizarre and that, that black and white. And it was kind of like, how is this happening? How is this possible? And so it was kind of, and then like at one point during the whistleblowing, uh, I had to basically defend telling the truth over and over to the point of where Kurt Weldon wanted to fly us out to see George Bush 43. They didn't want to see us. They didn't want to see us like, that's strange. You've got the, the goods on the Clintons. It, it, it was pretty clear the Clintons were involved in some of this wrongdoing. Didn't want to hear it. Uh, and then um, just some of the contrasts. Uh, at one point in time, I was, you know, getting a lot of flack from defense intelligence. And so, and I'm saying this just because it happened. Uh, they want, they, Kurt Weldon and his kind of Reagan guys, and the, by the way, the Reagan guys are the ones who are behind the scenes trying to help protect me. I'm friends and mentors with a lot of them. If it wasn't for the Reagan guys, I would not be here and survive, just saying. Uh a lot of the Reagan Democrat Republicans were pushing and supporting Kurt. At one point in time, they had me meet with the uh, Speaker of the House, Denny Hastert, uh, basically to convince me to testify. And uh, it was it was to that level because uh, so. And as I've told people, you know, when when the number three guy in government comes to you and says you need to testify, what are you going to do? What what do you you know? I mean, it, it's it seems to be pretty important. So it was. It was very much during that time, and I want to write a book about it eventually. Kurt Weldon wants to get a book out there too, because it was, uh, as my old friend Jerry Doyle, my late friend Jerry Doyle talked about, it, he said it was kind of a wilderness of mirrors. You, you, you kind of saw yourself, you saw images, but you didn't know what was real. It was very surreal. And then since then, since they came after the book, since there's other things which have been very much uh, ver made very clear to me that there's this larger bureaucracy, the, the bureaucracy came after Trump. Uh, I've told uh, uh, several folks in the Trump orbit that, look, uh, the, the Trump's enemies were my enemies, same group, same, same individuals, all about the fact that the, this larger bureaucracy has a, a mind of its own. And if you don't go along with it, you become an enemy of it, they will do everything they can to destroy you. And that's been my experience looking back at the whole thing. But that's a long way of answering right during the whistleblowing processes when I started recognizing something was really wrong. So, Would you agree that the Patriot Act empowered this cadre in a way that could never have been foreseen? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm one of those that believes that no, no new legislation was needed after 9-11. Simply put, Ron, and one of my friends, you may know him, uh, uh, Bruce Fine. Bruce is a constitutional attorney. Bruce said flat out that all of the authorities on the books were adequate to do what we needed to do after the 9-11 attacks. It was simply allowing for the intelligence community, law enforcement, and military to do its job. That's all. You didn't need the enhancements. And simply, I think the enhancements were, uh, were designed to benefit those in the state to reduce the level of, of legitimate oversight and give them great administrative powers that they should not have. I'm a big and, believer in that. And you know, it just occurred to me as you, as you mentioned that, that I think one of the other, I'd like to think, unintended consequences of of uh, of that pro of the of the Patriot Act was it made the judiciary um, co-conspirators 
with yeah. the intellect with the IC, uh, especially with the FISA court. Yeah, the FISA court. I think that's a hugely bad idea, uh, and it's simply, as my judgment, a rubber stamp. I, I don't care what they say about the due diligence. There's no due diligence there. You've got one side of the story. Nobody's actually presenting the other side. It's it's a complete sham. No, and, and look. First of all, it's funny. You know, you say we didn't need new legislation. We didn't need new legislation for judges and magistrates not to do due diligence when warrants are requested. They, first of all, especially in the, this, as, unlike say 30 or 40 years ago, and certainly before that, the vast majority of judges, especially in places like New York, federal judges are former prosecutors or FBI themselves. Right. So they're not going to tell these people who have the jobs they used to have. I don't, I don't believe you. I don't trust you. They just right. don't. They just don't. Um, and I, and then when they reach this point where under in the FISA court regime, they don't even have to, you know, their decisions are, are essentially never made public. You have a situation where not only do they do they abuse the law and abuse people's rights, but they cover up for each other. Exactly. And. You know, I, I always ask the question of whether you think there's any hope, and I hide it towards later in, in the discussion. I actually do want to make it clear, though, on the, on the censorship issue, we didn't mention it. You and I take it for granted. But when you wrote Operation Dark Heart, you had a really good first run, just not quite the way you intended. Yeah, it's kind of strange uh, to talk about that just a little bit. Um, for those who have not read the book, um, you know, they did, uh, you know, if you go through it, there's a lot of redactions. Let's see. Here we go. There's a good section of redactions. This is the original. This is the, no, this is not the original. This is the, the this is the censored version. So about that. So um, uh, basically in 2010, I'm able to write a book about my experience, Operation Dark Heart. Dark Heart was actually uh, the operation that we designed to go into Pakistan in 2003 to continue the offensive operations to go after Al-Qaeda and, and the Taliban. Uh, so that was the focus. Uh, with that said, I submitted it to the Army. I was in, uh, by that time, I was only in the Army. Uh, you know, I severed all other government affiliation. DIA did that for me. So I was, in, and so I submitted it to my chain of command, to the Army. And the Army processed it like they, they had to buy the regulations that, that existed. Uh, and so the Army cleared the book. We had a, 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 a document that said the Army had reviewed it. As a matter of fact, uh, Ron, the people in the Army who did it actually sent it down to Special Operations Command, uh, sent it to McChrystal's guys. As a matter of fact, one of the lawyers on it actually worked with the Special Operations Command. So it, it was, it was, as far as the Army was concerned, this is good to go. It wasn't until... Defense Intelligence Agency got wind of it, which, you know, I didn't hide it from them. I actually had a blurb from former director of DIA, Lieutenant General Pat Hughes, who was a director. And I said, you know, Pat, feel free to share it with me. And when they got wind of it, they wanted a formal review of the document. And the Army said, no, we've already reviewed it. So it took from January. Yeah, the Army said, no, we're not going to let you do it because it's going to be you're going to use it for retaliation. So the army fought the battle from wow yeah from January until um, this is twenty this is twenty ten from January until June they fought the battle the, an army just said no kept saying no and finally I don't know what happened legally 
but the army lost the battle and they finally said, you got to cop up a copy of the, the manuscript, send it to us and we'll send it on. So I did, I finally gave it to the army. I mean, gave it to the defense intelligence. And so all of July was this kind of radio silence. I think it was them trying to figure out what to do. In the beginning of August, the, the, the book is supposed to be published in August of, of, of France. Let's, let's take a step back. They're trying to figure out what to do because what? Well, I don't red. know. I mean, that's the thing. It's like we had it cleared. We didn't know what they were doing. We didn't know what they want. They were upset about. And it, it was very clear that they wanted to do something. So uh, the first week of August, uh, I uh, and the book is scheduled. It's already printed. It's already in the warehouse. It's, it's supposed to be released the end of August. And so the first week of August, I get called in by my army chain of command, the army general, with a letter from DIA. It's on Fox News website still, Catherine Herridge put it out there, former reporter. And basically it was from DIA, unclassified by them, not classified, not official use only. And basically it was a letter from DIA to the army. And, and basically to, to summarize, according to this letter, if Dark, Operation Dark Heart is published, the free world will fall. <laughs> I mean, that's a page and a half. It's what they say basically that everything in the world is, is oh my God, this is going to compromise everything in the world. Hint, hint, Ron, we won our First Amendment lawsuit and most of the redactions were removed. So that was complete baloney. I can say legally, that was complete baloney because we won our lawsuit. So it was, in my judgment, looking back on it, just an excuse to try to get, continue the harassment and retaliation for me having whistleblown because in the end, they lost all of this. They, they lost in front of a, a judge saying, no, no, it's, it's, you know, it's. But didn't DIA buy up the first run? So, so because they did carry this in, they basically said, oh, there's, there's identities in the book. Who, you know, he's giving up real names, which I didn't. But they made that claim. And so the publisher said, fine, we'll sell you the first run. <laughs> so, so DIA, uh, DOD coughed up money to buy the first 10,000 copies. They, they bought and, 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 you know, destroyed, burned, whatever you want to call it, the first 10,000 copies. And then the publisher wisely said, you've got three weeks to give us something we can publish. The Army already said it. We've got the paper. Our lawyers say we can publish. So you've got three weeks to work out what we can publish. So, um, Ron, I get called into the, the Pentagon. We spend three very painful weeks of them trying to go through and redact the A and A team. Who redacts A and A team? I mean, that, I mean, look, I mean, you, some of these things, 256 redactions, they promised like a handful, it turned into 256. I mean, it was just complete lunacy. And it was, it was meant to be retaliatory. I mean, it was, it was not about security. It was about embarrassment. And it was about them trying to go and trying to make sure that, that I suffered consequences. Of my because you were a whistleblower. Is that, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's really the point is you right. were a whistleblower. Right. So it backfired. By the fact that, uh, you know, basically DIA did comply. We sat down and went through it and they sent back to, uh, to uh, Tom, Dun Tom Dunn books. Tom, Tom Dunn, great guy, part of, uh, of, of uh, Macmillan. Macmillan did not back down a bit. They called their bluff every, every step of the way. And so in the end, at the end of August, they, DIA and DOD sends them back this big manuscript of all these redactions 
they basically, you know, they send it back. And, and so the lawyers talk to each other and the, the Macmillan lawyer says, so you send us, this is now unclassified, right? Yes, it is. Uh, so we're going to publish it. DOD goes nuts. No, 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 you can't publish it because it's got redactions. It's like, no, <laughs> we're going to publish it just like you gave it to us. This is unclassified, right? And if they even say in the, the publisher's note in our front says, hey, we don't agree with this, but this is what they forced us to do, making the point. So they made the point. Tom Dunn, uh, Macmillan made the point, and, and St. Martin's, is, Tom Dunn is an imprint of St. Martin's, St. Martin's is part of, of Macmillan. They made the point, it's like, this is what you get from government censorship. They wanted to prove that point, and that's why they published it the way they did, just the way it came from DOD. So this is, you know, one of the great things about having you on is that you actually have real experience <laughs> with real, actual government, First amendment censorship. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. So now let's fast forward into the 2020s. And governments don't censor. They outsource censorship. You're thrown off Twitter. Yeah. Pres presumably in connection with your statements about Ray Epps. Did you say anything that a million other people weren't already saying? No, Did you I have something so. juicy? No, as a matter of fact, I was just pointing out and I was trolling the guy. It's like, hey, here he is. Why isn't he being called to testify? Yeah, I mean, I, I must, of the 1,400 people I follow, I can't imagine fewer than 500 people of the, uh, were doing the same exact thing. Just was this the excuse they had been looking for all along? Or what do you, th I mean, it really seemed I, to come out of nowhere. Well, no, I've been suspended three other two other times, and I think they always try to warn you. It's like, I'm not doing anything extraordinary. So similar to this, Ron, I mean, we used uh, the, the information in this was derived mostly from my open, clear testimony regarding able danger. That's part of our legal defense. Like, it's already out there. So they keep saying, oh, it's, it's, put, it's you say it's you because you're saying it and you're saying it has more weight. What? Really? I, th I think it goes back to, I'd like to believe I'm a fairly credible critic of the government. Uh, uh, I observe things and say things as, as I believe they are. I, you know, I could be very pointed, but I think they feel that uh, somehow my opinions were dangerous. And I think that's where they could really come after you. It's not so much what you say, because I know someone with a small account, they could say whatever, and they probably would never get, get molested. It's all about the fact that people start finding credibility. As you know, Ron, I would get into fights with the trolls, some blue check trolls all the time. Yeah, you uh, and I, you, you know, there are people who have better judgment than you and I and just stay out of it. But we just, <laughs> some of us just can't, can't, there's some fights you just don't get into because you don't argue with bugs. But people sometimes say to me, Ron, this guy has uh, no followers or 10 followers. Why are you bothering? I'll tell you why I'm bothering. Because everyone, the 100,000 people who read me are reading him. And there is a level at which if I don't respond, I believe it's taken as an admission. Right. But, you know, you have to, you have, to have a judgment there. Go up, please. Continue, though. You, so, but the point is... Well, you, you, you no, I, and I agree with you. I mean, sometimes I go after small accounts because I think they needed to be addressed. And then, um, Ron, I had blue check accounts, as you know. One got one blue check from a, a, a 
that a marginally popular band is still trolling our Twitter website for our think tank. Uh, these people go nuts. I mean, they do. And uh, I, by the way, I don't uh, I don't usually go on their feed. I mean, yeah, I, I admit I kind of outlined Ray Epps and got, got him highlighted. But because he was trying to pretend there's nothing wrong. It's like, oh, OK, let's 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 just give him some attention then. And I think it was that attention they didn't appreciate being brought to him for whatever's going on. So, so, so this is the thing. I mean, we can have the whole the fascinating discussion about how social media works. I've had that though with two thirds of my guests. You have this really different angle here, so we're going to steer steer away from that. And I'll ask you the question: You are criticizing the government. Twitter's not the government. No, <laughs> is it? So it's hard to deny when Joe Biden himself says he's reached out to big tech and asked them to help eliminate disinformation. Now, one man's disinformation is another man's uh, unproven facts. Well, let me actually let me just let me make a point to you as an intelligence officer or a former intelligence officer, which you might not even have picked up on. Uh, when we first started doing um, litigation work for Project Veritas, I realized that... And great work, by the way. Great work. Thank you. Yes, Thank absolutely. you. I realized that the word I was seeing was misinformation. Now, misinformation is not disinformation. Right. And in fact, th- as far as I remember, and I've been an English speaker for a while, misinformation isn't wasn't really a thing. A person, we would say until fairly recently, a person could be misinformed. That's negligence or error. Disinformation, on the other hand, is a purposeful misleading and for tactical purposes. Right. I believe the left and probably the intelligence community have invented this combination, this word of misinformation, in order to steer clear of the idea that it is intentional or state-sponsored, or, but to still give the impression that unlike, because if you said that somebody is misinforming people, you know, people who talk about how the Bills are going to definitely win last week's uh, weekend's game were misinformed, yeah. <laughs> okay? They were misinformed. It turned out the Bills weren't as good as they thought they were. But that, but but if we say that they are sp- spreading misinformation, it sounds like spreading disinformation, right? And th- that, in and of itself, is a form of disinformation. So when so the social media companies are taking are doing this work for the government, they're they're carrying water for the government. There's not really any question about that. And I think that's the danger here because. Um... It's not, to me, free, uh, and by the way, London Center, we, we're very big into the Constitution. We're big into the First and Second Amendment. Then why are you in to London? The, hmm? They don't have one over there. You could get in more, more trouble in London. London Center. No, no, it's named after Dr. Herb London, my bo- yeah. old boss. You know. But yeah, I know what you're talking about. Herb Look, London, London is terrible right now. I, yeah, I would hate to I be got there. some friends over there. and uh, Boy, you know, uh, by the way, just a quick side note. I, I work with a, the Association of British Muslims, uh, the oldest Islamic group. They are hammered constantly because they they want to like beat they want to take the radicalism out of out of Islam and they're the ones being targeted. It's like insanity. Anyway, 
back on, to, on, on topic, it's just, um, it's very clear that the government has for 20 years now, I think, uh, Ron, this started back in the late 90s when uh, people started understanding the potential of social media. And I ran a unit, uh, Stratus Ivy. We were engaged in a lot of early cyber operations. We were doing things on websites that people had no idea you could do. I actually visited the the White House uh, twice during the Clinton years to get approval of very controversial operations. Uh, actually briefed uh, Hugh Shelton on several of them. So these, uh, before people figured out what you could do, we were already figuring it out as part of the intelligence community. And the the, the things that people see now data mining. Data mining was, you know, able danger use data. Nobody knew back then. Now data mining is huge. Uh, the idea of targeting individuals by their actions online. Nobody knew you could do that. Now it's common. All these things have been de developed and dare I say weaponized by the government. The government, uh, while not the most rapid adapter of technology, is the most sinister adapter of technology. They figure it out and they give it to these uh, faceless bureaucrats or purposes of, of essentially maintaining uh, a power uh, over those who would challenge their, uh, their power. And I, I would argue at this point that the Patriot Act combined with these other uh, less than uh, obvious laws and rules that have been established by the government have really gone to chill oversight Look, I'm a victim of that. I know, you know, I would love to have the ability to talk about everything that happened. I still can't. Uh, I, I know that others cannot speak freely. You, you and I both have shared that. And it's all, about, it's all about power and the people who have been most able to adapt the government's interests has been the progressive left. The progressive left used to be this, uh, all these lefties who wanted to support free speech and, and small government. They're, they're now the Soviets, and it's, the, it's the, the, the progressive Soviets combined with the power of government, government and big tech, which have become together in the, like, in the three horsemen of the apocalypse to really assault the, 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 the Bill of Rights, I'd say the whole thing, plus really work to undermine uh, the, the foundations of, of the republic. And I, I hope I'm not being over the top when I say that. I don't think you are. I, I, I have been... It, you know, seeing it, it occurred to me this morning, and luckily for you, I saved, I was going to tweet this, and I'm saving it for this, that lawyers today, who especially those of us who work in, in the, the First Amendment area, almost never, like, our concern when we analyze a case has, we have to do a minimum, and of course, in our case, we do far more than a minimum, but we have to do the research. But we're exercised far more by the question of where is it going to be heard and who appointed the judges in that district? Wow. Because the politics of the judiciary, I mean, I saw a, a colleague would describe in an email the federal bench as being taken with psychosis at this point they're like that they're, they're all out of their minds and luckily none of them listen to podcasts and certainly anyone who does doesn't listen in this deep because they're too busy earning their well-deserved salaries as great americans and patriots but it is very very troubling and you know as i said i do think there's been a system-wide 
compromising of standards. And what I think a lot, I say this, regulars will, will have heard me say this before, there is a culture, the, the, the judiciary is a community. And I think in the internet era, they're more in touch with each other nationally than they were 30 years ago. And they look over their shoulders at what other judges are doing. And they're at least as concerned with their social credit score among other judges. Hmm. What we used to call a strange new, you know, the American spectator used to call the strange new uh, respect phenomenon when people came to Washington after having been, you know, you know, after having been uh, anti, you know, what is it, uh, iconoclasts and, and uh, against the system. Right. And you also mentioned, you know, the left. What do you think? And this has nothing to do with your expertise. This is just a couple of guys over a beer. Do you think they were, they meant it when they talked about free speech then? Or you, do you think they, the, you know, the thought leaders among them said? So I, I have a degree in political science. And um, uh, one of my dearest friends is Dr. Jim Walker. He was a uh, flaming liberal. I mean, we were completely different politically. Uh, but I think there's a division within their own ranks. There's the traditional liberals. Uh, I, I believe Jim Walker, uh, Professor Walker, he was the, in charge of our pre-law program. I mentioned- uh, This was where? Uh, in, at Rice State University in Dayton, Ohio. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I, Ron, you'll find this ironic. While I, I did not go to pre-law, I was actually recruited for one quarter uh, in 86 by Jim to be on their mock trial team. And we actually went to Des Moines, Iowa, to Drake University. And we won uh, our, the national championship in front of the Iowa Supreme Court. and We beat Northwestern University. So I'm always proud of that fact that- uh, That's my law, that's my law school. Wow, that, well, there you go. So you, be, so, you yeah, beat the guys, you guys beat the guys in Evanston, not, you know, that's-, oh, that's good. No, it's good. so I, you know, by, by the way, I was already doing undercover stuff in the army. So Jim figured out, he could train me to be a lawyer. I asked him once, like, why did you pick me? So he's like, oh, you're already doing undercover stuff. I figured you could be handled being a lawyer for a quarter. So anyway, that's another story. But my point being is that Jim was a, was a, 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 a traditional uh, liberal. Uh, I think he was for all the things you and I talk about. Something happened within that, that side of the political aisle where uh, there was always this, the, the, Reed Smith was our staff communist. He was the one guy who always taught Soviet studies and was all for this stuff. And Jim and, and Reed were completely different, but they were both liberals. So I think the liberal liberals, the guys who were really for free speech lost. I think they lost the war and their party really was taken over by the Bernie Sanders, Reed Smiths, who really do believe that the state uh, should be the arbiter of what is right and wrong. Uh, should oversee and control resources and speech. So there, it's really kind of that division. I, I spoke to a former member of Congress this past weekend, who's very outspoken. I don't want to say her name, probably know who she is. Uh, she's appalled by what's happened to her party. And she's been, she's a pariah now because, you know, free speech. We don't want to hear about that. So it's, it's really a strange, and I think it's that, that Soviet part of the party that's gained control and, and doing all these things to undermine uh, the, the Constitution and, and the Republic. And what I find fasc fascinating is that you've got someone like Nancy Pelosi, huh. who has not particular, no real ideology, so she's a Democrat. But people such as her, such as she and 
people like Chuck Schumer, they're so committed to maintaining their personal influence and power that they're willing to do whatever is necessary to make their party this fantastically radical party, even, even to the extent of looking, you know, driving what looks like, unless they gerrymand their way out of it, a disaster in the midterms, rather than say, hey, come on, this, that, that's a little, I mean, it was only three or four years ago that they would say that's a little bit too much. They, they don't even say that anymore. Right. It's, well, Ron, what I find fascinating is that they don't understand that their actions would, can, could eventually burn down the very system that gives them their power. And I, I don't get it, how they don't understand. I mean, back in the old days, you'd have Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. And I've talked, you know, I'm very close to the old Reagan guys. But, but think of the apparatchiks in the old Soviet Union, okay? Yeah. The guys who were hanging on during the Gorbachev years and who you think must have known the, the end is near. And yet, they met yep. one more time and ordered up a, a, a gigantic shipment of handcuffs. They were going to do a new freeze and the whole thing, you know, rather than have just, you know, a mediocre apparatchik lifestyle that they could have probably played out for another 10 or 15 years, they pushed it and it all crumbled and they ended up with nothing until they realized that under oligarchy, they could do just fine if they just knew you know, because they knew where the bodies were buried. So before right. I let you go, and you've been so generous with your time, first of all, always have to let you pitch. Everyone has to get a chance to pitch. There is a new book coming out. Oh, no. Not. Look, I'm... Uh, You'd like to write, just, but you're not I writing. was just checking the numbers. I'm still, Dark Heart is still selling well over, you know, 10 years, 11 years later. So I, That's no, incredible. That's, well, that's I'm, awesome. I'm still... We're hoping to do a, a sequel eventually because... Um, you know, over the past 10 years after the book, we want to do kind of a prequel sequel. I mean, look, uh, Ron, I was asked to come back and help with the Bergdahl. I was doing a secret option to get Bergdahl back. And that's a good chapter. Uh, you know, they give you your clearance back when they want you to do something. It's like, yeah, we want you to go do something. And, well, that and makes of sense. course, you know, I advised the Trump campaign. And I, I was in advising Mike Pompeo when he was director. Of so there's, there's a lot of stuff that I think the American public needs to understand. That, that's still out there. But at this point, no. But I, I would, I ask people to go check out LondonCenter.org. It's, it's, it's uh, our, um, the think tank I run. We do a lot of work relating to national security, energy, uh, protecting the constitution, things like that. So, uh, and Ron, look, thank you for what you do for Veritas and, and the free speech issues. I just appreciate having the conversation. It's always good to, to, to speak with someone who has a, a fundamental, uh, clear understanding of the importance of the constitution and and who is actually a practitioner who understands how to use that to, to gain advantage. Well, I appreciate being appreciated. Here's your, here's that website. Uh, you've got a picture of our glorious leader on there. Yes. London Center for Policy founded by Herbert London. That's a name. You have to be an old cold warrior to recognize. Um, I, do you, do you miss mixing it up on Twitter though? I mean, you know, that was, <laughs> that was, I'm sure you feel like you have you, that your days are now are now five hours longer. <laughs> right? You've got so much was, so much more time on your hands. Yeah, I I believe it was a good First Amendment fight to fight, uh, folks on the left. There's a war, Ron, on objective facts, uh, and I would try to use facts and uh, rational thought in battles. And I would, you know, I'd be attacked constantly. And by the way. 
I would not go on to these guys' fees. They'd come on our my feet. And so oh, I yeah. felt I had the right to this defense. And uh, so I, I miss it and I don't. I mean, it, it was kind of like, you know, some of these knuckleheads, just their stupidity, just their self-owning. I miss the self-owning, Ron. I miss them <laughs> saying something that completely like you validated my point. Uh, I do miss that. But, you know, we'll see You have happens. hope. Tony, is there hope? Do you think we can oh, win this? Of course this? there's hope. Look, um, it's always, you know, I watched uh, the, darkest, uh, the, the darkest hours, that, uh, that thing about Winston Churchill in the early days of, oh. boy, uh, uh, by the way, I was blown away by, um, by the, uh, the quality of acting in that. I was surprised. It and, was remarkable. Yeah, look, it, it looked, boy, I, it, was, it's a very, it looked very bleak for uh, Winston Churchill and the British uh, people, but uh, they got through it. I think it's always darkest before the dawn to use an over overdrawn metaphor, but no, I, I think I'm, uh, I'm happy to still be in the war, Ron, and I'm happy to have you as an ally. So thank you. Well, for, thank you. Same here. Tony. Fantastic. Let's hang out again. Yes, sir. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.